Welcome. Welcome back. Welcome home. This is Tracy, and we want to thank you for being a part of the Life Together podcast. Before we get into this week's teaching, we want you to know that you matter to God and you matter to us. Life Together is a Wednesday evening gathering for worship, Bible study, and community here at Oak Creek Assembly of God in Oak Creek, Wisconsin. One hundred twenty people are gathered together in the upper room fifty days after Jesus dies on the cross. In those last fifty days, from the day that Jesus died on the cross to the day that the one hundred twenty believers are gathered together in the upper room in the city of Jerusalem, a lot of things happen in those fifty days. A lot of things happen for. Peter. So Peter sees Jesus die on the cross, but then three days later, Peter sees the risen Christ. He continues to see the risen Christ at several different occasions. He even sits down on the shoreline of the Sea of Galilee and has breakfast with the risen Savior. He is then standing on the hillside on the Mount of Olives as he watches Jesus ascend into the heavens, and Jesus says, go to Jerusalem and wait for the gift of the baptism in the Holy Spirit. So Peter then goes to Jerusalem, and they are there for 10 days in the upper room with 120 believers praying nonstop. And after those 10 days, fire comes across this room. There is uh, the sound of a mighty rushing wind, and all these believers are baptized in the Holy Spirit. Well, outside of this room, Chaos is setting loose in the streets. They hear all these people that are worshiping a little bit like the way that we worship today, and they're thinking these people have lost their minds. They have a theory that maybe they're just all drunk, but it's kind of early in the morning, so they're surprised that there's so much alcohol engaged in a church at 10 a.m. on a Sunday. So Peter comes out of, of the church, and he goes, hey, let me tell you what happened. So Peter preaches this amazing sermon 50 days after Jesus dies on the cross. And in one day, 3,000 people joined the church. And so there is this massive kickstart on the first day of the church of Jesus Christ. There's 3,000 people. Like a few days go by, and then John and Peter are walking into the temple, walking past the gate beautiful, and they see this crippled beggar who is sitting by the gate. And the crippled beggar says, hey, give me some money for a meal. And Peter and John say, silver or gold I do not have, but what I do have I give to you in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. And then he does. And this changed this one man's life in a drastic way, but it infected so many other people. People hear about this miracle, and in that same day, another 2,000 people joined the church. So within like 10, 11 days, 5,000 people are now part of this brand new Church of Jesus Christ. So this thing is like off to the races. There are crazy things happening. They're happening very, very quickly. And in all of this fast-paced chaos, Peter and John get arrested. So the Jewish leaders of the time are very concerned. What's happening? What is this movement that's happening so fast? How did this, uh, how did this crippled beggar that we all know couldn't walk, how is he suddenly walking? By what power they are doing this? And so they arrest Peter and John, and they put them on trial. And so in Acts chapter 4 is the trial for Peter and John after the healing of the crippled beggar. This is a series about the book of 1 Peter. We'll get there in a minute, but we're not going to start there first. So I want to read as we're starting tonight, the trial in Acts chapter 4, where Peter is explaining to the Jewish leaders what's going on. Who are these 5,000 people who are now claiming Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior? This is what Peter says in Acts chapter 4, verse 5 through 11. 
the Bible says, The next day the council of all the rulers and elders and teachers of religious law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, along with Caiaphas, John, Alexander, and other relatives of the high priest. They brought in two disciples and demanded, By what power or in whose name have you done this? Then Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, Rulers and elders of our people, are we being questioned today because we've done a good deed for a crippled man? Do you want to know how he was healed? Let me clearly state to all of you and to all the people of Israel that he was healed by the powerful name of Jesus Christ the Nazarene, the man who you crucified but whom God raised from the dead. For Jesus is the one referred to in the scriptures where it says, The stone that the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. Let's pray as we get started tonight. Father, I thank you for your presence. I thank you that you are here with us tonight. You have not left us alone. The burdens that we have brought into this room, you care for us so deeply. And I pray, Lord, that as we spend time in your word, that you will shape our spirit, you will transform our attitudes and our actions, that they might be pleasing in your sight. We need you. We need your guidance. We need your presence over everything that we do. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So Peter is on trial for the healing of the crippled man. And Peter says, if you want to know who did this, I'm going to fill you in, guys. If you're curious by what power this crippled man started walking, I need you to know I didn't do this. This wasn't me. The person who did this was Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the miracle worker. He is capable of all things. He is awesome. And if you, if you haven't quite figured out yet who Jesus is, I'm going to explain it to you. And I'm going to explain it to you by going a little Old Testament. So Peter is sitting there with people who had not read the New Testament because it had not been written yet. But the people he's talking to, the Jewish leaders of their time, were very, very familiar with the Old Testament. And so Jesus says, or Peter says, I can explain this Jesus to you, and I can do it in a way that you're going to understand. And so I'm going to do it by talking about people in the Old Testament who already told us who Jesus was going to be. So, for example, Isaiah the prophet made many different prophecies about who the Messiah was going to be, how he was going to be born, what he was going to be called. And Isaiah made a prophecy that Peter nods at in his trial defense. In Isaiah chapter 28, verse 16, Isaiah says, Therefore, this is what the sovereign Lord says, Look, I am placing a foundation stone in Jerusalem, a firm and tested stone. It is a precious cornerstone that is safe to build on. Whoever believes need never be shaken. The other reference that Peter makes in his defense is a psalm of David, which is Psalm 118.22 that says, The stone the builders rejected has now become the cornerstone. You know, in the capital city of Jerusalem, there was one building that was more important than any other building, and that building was the temple. It was the one space. It was the place where God was. And so this was the most important building in the city, but yet this building had gone through some really challenging times. The temple was built, and then it was destroyed, and then it was built, and then it was destroyed again. And Peter's talking to these guys, trying to explain to them who Jesus is. And he says, here's the deal. This temple's been built and destroyed so many times. And somewhere along the way, there was a stone that you rejected. And that stone was Jesus, and Jesus has now become the cornerstone. You thought it was trash. You thought it was unnecessary. You tried to kill him. 
but Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the one that holds it all together. Jesus is the foundation for the place where the glory of God is going to dwell. Jesus is the cornerstone. So he makes this amazing defense in Acts chapter 4, but I want to ask kind of a curious question about this trial in Acts chapter 4, and I want to ask this question. What did Peter not know yet in Acts chapter 4? So in Acts chapter 4, Peter is probably in his 30s. And how old is the church in Acts chapter 4? It's about 11 days old. So, so what, what did he know? Well, I mean, Peter absolutely knew who Jesus was, right? He, he's demonstrating to us a full, complete understanding of who Jesus Christ is. Jesus is the cornerstone. Jesus is the foundation for the place where the Spirit of God will dwell. He knows this. He knows this very well. What does Peter not know in Acts chapter 4? Well, this church thing is brand new. He's got 5,000 people. It's all about 11 days old. There's still a lot for him to experience, a lot for him to understand. So by the time Peter sits down to write the epistle of 1 Peter, it is now 30 years after Acts chapter 4. He's now in his 60s or 70s, and he's sitting down to write about who Jesus is. This man is no longer a rookie. This man is an experienced shepherd of the body of Christ. In the book of 1 Peter, he's writing to five persecuted churches in Asia Minor. And now we're going to move to where he starts talking in, in, sec, in 1 Peter chapter 2. So the last two weeks we worked through 1 Peter chapter 1. We're going to go on to 1 Peter chapter 2 this week. But I want to keep this in mind as we read this first verse. What are the things we already know? We already know that Jesus is the cornerstone. But what new information is Peter about to give us? What has he learned in the last 30 years? Let's start in 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4 and 5. Peter says, You who are coming to Christ, who is the living cornerstone of God's temple. See, we already knew this. He was rejected by people, but he was chosen by God for great honor. We already knew this. And you are, here's us, you are living stones that God is building into his spiritual temple. What's more, you are his holy priests. Okay, this is huge. So Isaiah and David told us that Jesus was the cornerstone. They knew this. If you think back to during Jesus' life, Jesus says himself, he goes, hey, you're going to destroy this temple, but I'll rebuild it in three days. Well, who's he talking about? Himself, right? He was the place where the glory of God would dwell. So we know that Jesus is the cornerstone. But now Peter is saying something new after all of his life experience to people like you and me, people who have called upon the name of Jesus Christ. And he says, I know that you know that Jesus is the cornerstone, but I need you to also know that you are followers of Christ, those who have been baptized into the faith of Jesus Christ, those who have sat at the communion table with the body of Jesus Christ, you are living stones. You are part of the building. You are the place where the glory of God will dwell. Jesus is the cornerstone. He holds it all together. But you are the body of Christ. You are the new temple. You are the place where the glory of God will dwell. This is a, it's a huge deal. It's very exciting. And if you think about it, it's also a little intimidating. In the less than immortal words of Stan Lee, with great power comes great responsibility. 
And so when someone tells me that I am the place where the glory of God will dwell, it feels like a big job title. But this is what Peter's calling us to. Peter says, if you've been baptized in the faith of Jesus Christ, if you've sat at the communion table with the body of Jesus Christ, you're part of a new family. You're chosen, but you also have a job. You have a new, and let me tell you what your job title is. He says, what's more, you are his holy priest. Whose priests? God's priests. Mandy and I met when we were uh, 18 at Central Bible College. It was a, a, a Bible training school in Springfield, Missouri. What was cool about the institution is that it uh, was, had a singular focus on training people that were going to go into full-time vocational ministry. So the, it was ministers and missionaries, and those were the only degree programs that they offered. What was sweet about that was that everyone that we were studying with were all kind of of the same mind, on the same track. And it's interesting to think about this calling of priests and to think about it almost as like a college program is because, you know, what if, what if that was your job? You know, what if you were the, the president of a, a Bible school and someone said, hey, you've got four years with these, these students. What do you think they should know? You know, if you want to prepare them to be the next generation of priests, what test should they pass? You know, I mean, obviously it's not just head knowledge. What, what character should they be developing? What ethics should they be operating by? And what Peter does in 1 Peter chapter 2 is he really sends all of us to Bible school. Because he says, let me tell you about this church of Jesus Christ. This is not going to be a church that is going to be split by priests and parishioners. It's not going to be split up with preachers and pew warmers. This is not a some of you are priests. He says all. We are going to be a kingdom of priests. Everyone who is in Christ is going to be a priest. It's not just for Pastor and Sherry and for the pastoral staff. It's not just for people who've been saved a certain length of time. Everyone has been called to be priests. So if you are in Christ, if you've called upon the name of Jesus, you're part of a new family tonight, and you also have a job. You also have a role, and Peter's desire here is to enroll each one of us tonight in Bible school. And so we're going to have a little fun, and we're going to put us into a class. I think the class tonight, we're going to call it uh, uh, Priesthood 101 with Prophet Professor Pastor Peter. It's kind of fun to say. Prophet Professor Pastor Peter, please pay attention, pupils. And we're going to look through here and see a few lessons that I think Peter would like to teach each one of us in our calling to be holy priests of God. We're going to find the first lesson in verse 1. Peter says, So, get rid of all evil behavior. Be done with all deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and all unkind speech. So lesson number one is just one word, and the lesson number one is purify. You know, last week we talked about how we must get our minds ready for battle against our old ways, our own desires, and our unholy actions. Peter continues to explain the why of this instruction. I need you to be holy because you are called to be a holy priest. Last week we learned that the word holy does not mean perfect. It means separated. So I need your actions and desires and motivations to be separated because I want you to be in a job that is separated from all others. I need you to be my holy priest. So be holy and be God's holy priests. Can we look at the four things that are listed in this verse? So the first one is deceit. Uh, deceit is misrepresenting the truth, leading people to believe what you want them 
to believe, manipulating their feelings or their behavior with anything that is not 100% true. 99% true is still a lie. So one of the great foundations of every relationship is trust. If I have a priest that I cannot trust, how are they going to help me encounter God? How can they be the place where God's presence is if they are not being fully honest? Peter says, if you want to be a holy priest, get rid of deceit. The next thing on the list is hypocrisy. Hypocrisy is claiming the moral high ground while living in the lowlands. So there was, a, there was an American football player by the name of Wes Fessler, and he said it this way. I love this quote. He said, hypocrisy is the audacity to preach integrity from a den of corruption. I like this, right? So this isn't a trap that you find yourself in overnight. I feel like when it comes to hypocrisy, it's small decisions over a long period of time that create more and more distance between what you say and what you do. That gap is hypocrisy. Peter says, if you want to be a holy priest, get rid of hypocrisy. The third item here is jealousy. Jealousy is debilitating desire to others' possessions, for others' possessions and positions. Uh, the Apostle James says, Wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, there you will find disorder and evil of every kind. This is kind of a, a crazy promise. If you would ever like to see evil of every kind, the only thing you need to put in the room is jealousy. Because James says, Wherever there is jealousy and selfish ambition, Evil of every kind is going to be close behind it. Uh, when, any, when envy finds root in your heart, you better be ready because what comes next is going to be evil of every kind. We cannot have envy in our heart and be a holy priest. Peter says, if you want to be a holy priest, get rid of envy. The final item on the list is unkind speech. And I really feel in my heart, if there was a challenge right now for a church that lives in our culture, in American culture, that could really get pushed on, I feel like we really need to be challenged to be pushed in this area of unkind speech. You know, America, like many other conservative cultures, 50, 60, 70 years ago, had a really high respect nature in our culture. Yes, ma'am. Yes, sir. And speaking kindly to someone, even when you disagreed with them. Well, you know, as we've seen our culture, those outside of the church, drift farther and far, the farther away from that. And permission just to get nasty, it has been a bad reaction from Christian people to feel that that also gives us, us permission to do the same. That, that any unkindness in our speech is not glorifying towards God and that we must separate ourselves in the way that we communicate. We must be able to be the holy priest that God's called us to be. Peter says, if you want to be a holy priest, get rid of unkind speech. We purify ourselves of all these things because God wants his people to be his temple and God cannot dwell in the same space as deceit, hypocrisy, jealousy, and unkind speech. We'll find our second lesson in verse two and three. Peter writes this, like newborn babies, you must crave pure spiritual milk so that you will grow into full into a full experience of salvation. Cry out for this nourishment now that you have had a taste of the Lord's kindness. Lesson number two is, is dignify. After the, the Queen of England passed away recently, um, I've done some reading about her role and how that role kind of functions in the British government since 
I'm American, and I don't really understand all of that. And uh, there was one writer that I was reading who was a, a British political writer, and he explained it this way. He explained it as the dignified and the efficient. So it's the idea that the prime minister in Britain is the efficient. He's the one who, he or she, is the one who gets into the mud, and they got to work through all the policies. They're going to fight through dirty, scrappy elections, and people are going to be mad at them, but they got to get the work done, and they are the efficient. And then the queen or the king, the monarch, is the dignified, and it is their job or role to rise above those things and to always be above I believe as holy priests, we need to be continually rising. That as we seek Christ, as we work towards looking more like him, sounding more like, acting more like Jesus, that we find ourselves in a constant state of rising higher. This really is the beauty of the calling towards priesthood. You know, it's, it's not a measuring stick. I don't know if you grew up in a house where they had like the door frame that they were marking like how tall you were as you're going up. And I think sometimes we treat priesthood as kind of like a, are you this tall to ride on this ride? That's like, okay, well, once you've been saved for a certain amount of time, or you know enough memory verses, or you've, you know, prayed enough hours, then, then you're good enough. And then if you're good enough, right, so if you're wise enough, strong enough, smart enough to be a priest, well, then you're just kind of set, right? So then, then you can just chill out wherever you're at because you're now tall enough to ride this ride. And that is not in any way rep representative of the calling of priesthood because the person who got saved three days ago is called to be a holy priest. The person who has been saved for 70 years is called to be a holy priest. And the, the, the ask is not how tall are you. The ask is are you growing? Are you rising? Do you hunger for spiritual milk that you would be a well-nourished Christian, that you would be a thriving, verdant Christian, bringing life to everywhere that you go? So you might be a brand new Christian, but if you are seeking God and growing, then you are on the path to be a healthy priest. If you have been saved for many, many years and you are in the word of God, you are with his people, you are being striving together to grow, then you are on a good path to be the holy priest that God has called called you to be. You are being dignified through the power of the Holy Spirit, through his sanctification. You are rising. This is one of the reasons we gather together here on Wednesday nights. It's not because you guys just need something to do on a Wednesday. It's because when we come in, when we spend time in the Word of God, it, get, it shapes us. It's the reason that, if you've noticed, whenever I pray, when I read our opening scripture, we always pause and we pray right after we read. And that's my way of communicating the value that this word isn't going to be enough. The Holy Spirit has to do the work here on Wednesday nights in your hearts, in your soul. So when we walk out of here at 8.15 every Wednesday night, everyone looks just a little bit more like Jesus because we've been changed and shaped by his word. That's what he's calling to. Be rising. Don't get stagnant. Be growing and let the Holy Spirit build you into the priest that he wants you to be. We find the third lesson in verse number nine. Let's read 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 9. But you are not like that. He was referring to those who had rejected Christ. For you are a chosen people. You are royal priests, a holy nation, God's very own possession. Can I just tell you how sweet that is to me to know that I am God's very own possession. I am like the nice china set in grandma's house. Like he, he shows me off to his friends. He's so proud that I get to be with him. That, 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 that moves me tonight. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God. 
for, the, for he called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. I'm going to read that last sentence again. As a result, you can show others the goodness of God, for he has called you out of the darkness into his wonderful light. Lesson three is just one word, and it's exemplify. Show the world how it's done. Show the world what it means to be a Christian employee, a Christian student, a Christian parent, a Christian leader, to be in a Christian marriage, to raise kids in a Christian home, to go through conflict as a Christian, to battle disease as a Christian, to battle grief as a Christian, to hope like a Christian, to give like a Christian, to love like a Christian. Show the world how it's done. You know, if God could have just explained his love to the world, the Old Testament would have been all that we need. If it just needed to be explained well, if God could just go, hey, let, let me just, I'll, I'll tell Moses some stuff, I'll tell Abraham a few things, I'll tell Isaiah and Jeremiah, you know, a, a few important details, and then they can just explain me to them. But the explanation was never going to be enough. It had to be exemplified. Jesus had to come. He had to come as a baby. He had to live a life. He had to show us what God's love looked like. He had to demonstrate the kingdom of heaven. It wasn't just a sermon. I'm just, if you've been in church long enough to get this, you get this. The sermon's never going to do the trick. Like, it's just not enough. I can sit up here, and I might be just on fire tonight, and I might preach the best sermon I've ever preached in my life. But if I'm leaving tonight, and you hear me yell at my wife as I walk out the door, all is lost. The love of Christ has to be exemplified. We have to show this to the world. If you want to be the priest that God has called you to be, you need to exemplify what Christ's love looks like to the world and build that. I think Peter puts all of us in school tonight. The three lessons he gave us is that we would purify, dignify, and exemplify. I, I believe that God has a calling on every one of your lives. And I know that that people say that, and it's kind of an easy thing to dodge. It's a really easy thing to sit there and go, yeah, I'm sure that person does. This is not about a certain personality type. It is not about a certain skill set. It is about being chosen by God. And if you are in the fold, if you have submitted your life to Christ, I want to remind you, you didn't choose God, you just accepted the invitation. God chose you. He saw you, he selected you, there is a call upon your life, and he didn't call you just to add one more number to the attendance on Wednesday night or to add one more number to the attendance on Sunday morning. He has a calling on your life to be a royal priest. His church is going to be a house of priests. It is going to be a nation of priests. There's a a book that I love called How to Worship a King. If you've been around here for a while, you've probably heard me use, reference the book, or we've used that name, How to Worship a King, for some of the worship nights we've done here. It's written by a worship pastor in Dallas, Texas, named Zach Neese. And he has a, a definition for the role of a priest that I really love, and I want to read that to you tonight. He says, priests care for the space where the holy and the common meet. And I love that. As a I've been, I've been a worship leader for a long time, and there's a certain attachment that I will just naturally have to rooms and spaces. You know, I'm sure that you do to your home, churches, grandma's house, certain places that are significant. And, you know, we've only been having church in here on Sunday mornings in, in the gym for, uh, for uh, you know, a few months here. But 
in any sanctuary that I've been in, you know, that one I've been in for eight years. I was in my church in Tulsa for nine years. And I'll, I'll usually have like a normal spot where, where I'm at on stage. And, and I just want to, in not a weird way, just tell you that like there's something that's so meaningful to me about that. There's something that's so meaningful to me about this room that's meaningful to me about any sanctuary that I've had the chance to lead worship in before. Because in my heart, God has placed the calling to care for the space where the common and the holy meet. And who's the common? We're the common. We are, we are people with bad attitudes, and we get cranky. And sometimes we walk into church with a little bit of sin sticking to our shoe. And we need to repent, and we need to come in, and we're not perfect and we come into this room with the dirt of this earth and the crud of our sinful nature in our hearts. And yet, we come into a place and we meet with the divine that on a Sunday morning in a worship service like this, something transcendent occurs. That there is a God of the universe who saw you, who knew you, who created you, who loved you, who gave up everything for you. And that he would come and spend even a minute even a moment with us becomes something that is so precious that is worth giving up everything for. But I'm reminded over and over again that that call towards priesthood, that calling to create a space for the common and the holy to spend time together um, is not about a building. It wasn't about a building when, when Jesus said. It wasn't about a building in Acts 4. It wasn't about a building in First Peter and it's not about a building now. If God has called you to be a priest, you are the living stone. You are the place where the Spirit of God will dwell. And he has called you to make and care for the spaces where the common and the holy meet. So when you sit down at your home with a family member and you pray with them, when you pause in your workroom and you pray with someone at work, when you have a conversation on the phone with someone who just feels a little desperate, and you create a space where their commonness, our commonness, our brokenness, our dirtiness, our, our earthliness is able to spend even a moment with a divine and transcendent God, you are doing your job. You are accepting your role. You are being the priest that God has called you to be. If you hear thing one, one thing tonight, here it is. Be the priest that God has called you to be. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we love you. I thank you for the calling that you've given each one of us tonight. I thank you that you have seen each one of us, that you have chosen each one of us. And I pray that tonight as we've talked, there would be a stirring, a refreshing, a renewing of the call that you have placed inside each one of us. You have placed great dreams in the minds of these priests. There are specific actions or ministries or conversations or opportunities that you are placing in their minds, even right now, of ways for us to fulfill our calling as your holy priest. Make us brave people. Make us holy people. God, help us purify our minds. Help us clean out the stuff that should not be in your temple. I pray you would help us to dignify, to be rising, to not be trapped down, but to be moving upward closer to you and closer to your character. 
I pray that you would help us tonight to exemplify the things that you have taught us to show the world how it's done. We need your help, and I pray, Lord, that you would just guide every heart in this room. If there's someone who feels discouraged, someone who feels disqualified from the role that you've called, I pray that you would lift up their heads tonight. I pray that you would help them to see themselves through your eyes and not their own, to know what they are called for and what they have been chosen for. We thank you for this night. We thank you for the good things that only you can accomplish. You are good. All of your word is true. We trust you. We give you praise. We lift to you, God, our expectations. We lift to you our abilities and our hearts that your name would be magnified. We give you praise in all these things. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Thank you so much for being with us for the Life Together podcast. It's even better when we get to see you in person. You are invited to join us on Wednesday evenings here at Oak Creek Assembly of God. We are a church that exists to reach our world for Christ as we lead people to discover and become who God has created them to be. Find us online at oakcreekag.org.